Welcome back to the book podcast and our readings of In Search of Lost Time by Marcel Proust. So we're going to continue now with more of the of the descriptions of everyday life and little scenes from Monsieur Swan. And yet one day, when my grandmother had gone to ask some favor of a lady whom she had known at the Sacré-Cœur, and with whom, because of our caste theory, she had not cared to keep up with any degree of intimacy in spite of several common interests. The Marquise de Villeparisis, or the famous house of Billion. This lady had said to her, I think you know Monsieur Swann very well. He's a great friend of my nephews, the Delhommes. My grandmother had returned from the call full of praise for the house, which overlooked some gardens and in which Madame de Villeparis had advised her to rent a flat and also for a repairing tailor and his daughter, who kept a little shop in the courtyard, in which she had gone to ask them to put a stitch in her skirt, which she had torn on the staircase. My grandmother had found these people perfectly charming. The girl, she said, was a jewel, and the tailor a most distinguished man, the finest she had ever seen. For in her eyes distinction was a thing wholly independent of social position. She was in ecstasies over some answer the tailor had made, saying to Mama, Sevigny would not have said it better. And, by way of contrast, of a nephew of Madame de Villeparisis, whom she had met at the house. My dear, he is so common. Now, the effect of that remark about Swan had been not to praise him in my great-aunt's estimation, but to lower Madame de Villeparisis. It appeared that the def deference which, on my grandmother's authority, who owned to Madame de Villeparisis, imposed on her the reciprocal obligation to do nothing that would render her less worthy of our regard, and that she had failed in her duty in becoming aware of Swan's existence and in allowing members of her family to associate with him. How should she know Swan, a lady who you always made out was related to Marshall McMahon. This view of Swan's social atmosphere, which prevailed in my family, seemed to be confirmed later on by his marriage with a woman of the worst class. You might almost say a fast woman, whom, to do him justice, he never attempted to introduce to us, for he continued to come to us alone, though he came more and more seldom but from whom they thought they would establish on the assumption that he had found her there, the circle unknown to them in which he ordinarily moved. But on one occasion, my grandfather read in a newspaper, the newspaper that Monsieur Swann was one of the most faithful attendants on the Sunday luncheons given by the Duke de X, X whose father and uncle had been among our most prominent statesmen in the reign of Louis Philippe. Now my grandfather was curious to learn all the little details which might help him to take a mental share in the private lives of men like Molay, the Duc Pasquier, or the Duc de Brolier. He was delighted to find that Swan associated with people who had known them. My great aunt, however, interpreted this piece of news in a sense discreditable for, to Swan. For anyone who chose his associates outside the caste in which he had been born and bred, 
outside his proper station, was condemned to utter degradation in her eyes. It seemed to her that such a one abdicated all claim to enjoy the fruits of those friendly relations with people of good position, which prudent parents cultivate and store up for the children's benefit. For my great aunt had actually ceased to see the son of a lawyer we had known because he had married a highness and had thereby stepped down in her eyes from the respectable position of a lawyer's son to that of those adventurers, upstart footmen or stable boys mostly, to whom we read that queens have sometimes shown their favors. She objected, therefore, to my grandfather's plan of questioning Swan. When next he came to dine with us about these people whose friendship with him we had discovered. On the other hand, my grandmother's two sisters, elderly spinters who shared her nobility of character but lacked her intelligence, declared that they could not conceive what pleasure their brother-in-law could find in talking about such trifles. They were ladies of lofty ambition, who for that reason were incapable of taking the least interest in what might be called the pinchbeck things of life even when they had an historic value, or, generally speaking, in anything that was not directly associated with some object aesthetically precious. So complete was their negation of interest in anything which seemed directly or indirectly a part of our everyday life, that their sense of hearing, which had gradually come to understand its own futility when the tone of the conversation at the dinner table became frivolous or merely mundane, without the two old ladies being able to guide it back to the topic there to themselves, would leave its receptive channels unemployed so effectively that they were actually becoming atrophied. So that if my grandfather wished to attract the attention of the two sisters, he would have to make use of some such alarm signals as mad doctors adopting in dealing with their distracted patients, as by beating several times on the glass with the blade of a knife, fixing them at the same time with a sharp word and a compelling glance. Violent methods, which the said doctors are apt to bring with them into their everyday life among the sane, either from force of professional habit or because they think the world, the whole world, <laughs> a trifle mad. Their interest grew, however, when, the day before Swan was to dine with us, and when he had made them a special present of a case of Asti, my great-aunt, who had in her hand a copy of the Figaro, in which, to the name of a picture then on view in a Corot exhibition, were added the words, from the collection of Mr. Charles Swan, asked, Did you see that Swan is mentioned in the Figaro? But I have always told you, said my grandmother, that he had plenty of taste. You would, of course, retorted my great-aunt, say anything just to seem different from us. For, knowing that my grandmother never agreed with her, and not being quite confident that it was her own opinion, which the rest of us invariably endorsed, she wished, wished to extort from us a wholesale condemnation of my grandmother's views against which she hoped to force us into solidarity with her own. 
but we sat silent. My grandmother's sisters, having expressed a desire to mention to Swan this reference to him in the Figaro, my great-aunt dissuaded them. Whenever she saw in others an advantage, however trivial, which she herself lacked, she would persuade herself that it was no advantage at all, but a drawback, and would pity so as not to have to envy them. I don't think that would please him at all. I know very well I should hate to see my name printed like that, as large as life in the paper, and I shouldn't feel at all flattered if anyone spoke to me about it. She did not, however, put any very great pressure upon my grandmother's sisters, for they, in their horror of vulgarity, had brought to such a fine art the concealment of a personal allusion in a wealth of ingenuous circumlocution that it would often pass unnoticed even by the person to whom it was addressed. As for my mother, her only thought was of managing to induce my father to consent to speak to Swan, not of his wife, but of his daughter, whom he worshipped, and for whose sake it was understood that he had ultimately made his unfortunate marriage. You need only say a word, just ask him how she is. It must be so very hard for him. My father, however, was annoyed. No, no, you have the most absurd ideas. It would be utterly ridiculous. But the only one of us in whom the prospect of Swan's arrival gave rise to an unhappy foreboding was myself. And that was because on the evenings when there were visitors or just Monsieur Swan in the house, Mama did not come up to my room. I did not at that time have dinner with the family. I came out to the garden after dinner, and at nine I said good night and went to bed. But although these evenings I used to dine earlier than the others, and to come in afterwards and sit at the table until eight o'clock, when it was understood that I must go upstairs. That frail and precious kiss which Mama used always to leave upon my lips when I was in bed and just going to sleep, I had to take with me from the dining room to my own and to keep inviolate all the time that it took me to undress without letting its sweet charm be broken, without letting its volatile essence diffuse itself and evaporate. And just on those very evenings when I must take, when I'm must needs take most pains to receive it with due formality. I had to snatch it, to seize it instantly and in public, without even having the time or being properly free to apply to what I was doing. The punctiliousness which madmen use who compel themselves to exclude all other thoughts from their minds while they are shutting a door, so that when the sickness of uncertainty sweeps over them again, they can triumphantly face and overcome it, with the recollection of the precise moment in which the door was shut. Okay, so we're going to stop it there. Um, this is one example of how sometimes Proust goes on very elaborately uh, with all the details, and there's not um, there's not that many layers to it. It's, it's more a description, and there's a scene unfolding, and then afterwards you you will get some kind of reflection that 
is uh, more effectful because you have this mass of text right in front of it. And, and then it also, it creates an effect because it stands out and it also mirrors in some, some sense also how life can be at times. You can have like many days, no big events and suddenly something happens that stands out and then you can uh, get some deeper insights. Uh, but you can notice the last part here with like, so first of all, we're now firmly into Marcel's childhood. Like in the beginning, he's an adult person who is kind of back and forth with memories and dreams, imagination, and, and the swirls of different rooms and just warming up all, all the fragments. And now we're fully into being present in these, these events from his childhood. And then he, he flips back to himself and his own experience at the end here with with um, the, the kiss from his mother that he is not going to get with if Mr. S Mr. Swan is visiting, and then we're more into the mind of and feeling the mind and the perception of the world from inside of the, the young Marcel as a little boy. Okay, so uh, that's all for this one. And then, uh, as always, thank you so much for listening, and see you again soon.